Hey guys, and welcome to episode 41 of the show. I'm your host, Curtis, and this is a special episode. Yes, there was no intro music. Um, I had technical difficulties this time getting my music on. It was a stereo mono problem. Anyway, the reason today's episode is so special, as you probably know by now, is this is my interview with Brunswick Town site manager, Jim McKee. Now, I'm not going to hold you up because it is going to be a long episode. I will say if you like this episode or are your or you're curious about other episodes, definitely go to www.dnceverythingpodcast.com and there you can find everything you need to to listen to the, the show. Also, check us out on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you go to any of those and search the NC Everything Podcast, um, you'll, you'll definitely find us. Now, in regards to the interview, we are down by the river and we are outside. Um, you can hear people walking around. It's not too distracting. Um, there's also a lot of cicadas flying around. I don't think they got too loud, but in the interview at one point, you can hear Jim say something like, um, like, oh, hello. Well, a cicada literally landed in his lap while we were talking. Also, um, you can probably hear in here. I'm, I'm a little nervous. It was my first, and Jim is, is an incredible historian. I was blown away about how much knowledge he had, and uh, maybe I maybe I fanned out a little bit, but there's several parts in the interview where, when I listen back, I can tell I'm kind of dazed. Um, it was, uh, but it was a good interview. Last thing, when I sent the audio from my recording equipment to my computer, I've picked up this static shit, and I'm not sure what it is. I worked for a couple hours today trying to get it out, and I'm I'm not real happy with the result. I'm not sure what happened. And maybe I'll uh, see if I can't clean it up and re-release this interview in the future. But on my end, anyway, everything's audible. It's a little annoying. I hope it doesn't get too bad on y'all's end. But everything is pretty audible. Um, so I hope you enjoy the interview. And here's Brunswick Town Site Manager, Jim McKee. Hey, everybody. I'm back here at Brunswick Town, and I'm sitting with Jim McKee. Jim, can you tell people what you do here? Yes. <laughs> I do, do when you when, when you work for historic sites, you do a little bit of everything. Um, but I'm the I'm the site manager. Um, but I do interpretation, um, archaeology, maintenance, scrub toilets, work on the exhibits. Yeah, a little bit of I mean, literally a little bit of everything. Well, we're down here by the waterfront, sitting under this tree. Can you tell them what you told me about this tree here? Yeah, we just found out this this live oak that's this massive that's that's right here uh, over the boardwalk. Um, we just found out that well, we just had it confirmed that it was a, that it is a witness tree. Um, we had which during the last hurricane, Isaias, back in uh, August of last year, took a, a smallish limb off it, probably four inches in diameter, and. I had a had a section cut out of that limb and sent it to a gentleman who was a professor at Montana State for almost 50 years dealing with, with botany. And he counted the rings. And he counted just 175 rings just in that 4-inch diameter limb. Well, I found one article online when I wanted to interview and it was from the WilmingtonNCMagazine.com called Living History. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the only article I found and <laughs> I wanted to interview about interview you about Brunswick Town, <clears throat> but as I read the article, I decided I want to interview you about you, 
you've had okay. a, yeah. you've had quite a life in in history. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you became a role model in about ten minutes. It took me to read that article. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. The article said you kind of grew up. Uh, I, I know you were born in Clinton, but you kind of grew up around Williamsburg. Well, I, I was actually born in Winston Salem, and the first six years of my life, almost seven, first six years for sure, was uh, in Newport News. Newport News, which is right down the road from Williamsburg, Yorktown, all that. And so, pretty much almost every weekend, we were at Yorktown or Williamsburg. <laughs> it seemed like, and I mean, you know, to see see where Williamsburg was 50 years ago um, and where it is now, it's, it's, it's hugely different. Um, but, you know, Williamsburg has always been, and Yorktown has always been a big part of my life. And now that I'm here at Brunswick and have been able to look at the ins and outs of the archaeology and the research that was done here, Back in the late, actually in the 40s, 50s, and 60s by Lawrence Lee and Stanley South. And the work that uh, Ivor Noel Hume was doing in Williamsburg with the archaeology there and the conservation. And how both sites were comparing notes, yeah. so to speak. And Hume really didn't want to share a lot of his stuff with, with, the, with the people that were working here at Brunswick. But uh, he did, and, and, and but when when he realized there was comparisons to what's being found here and there, um, it just it was just it just clicked. So, you know, Williamsburg always had a meaning to me for most of my life, and then when I started here, um, and and looking deeper, it, it took on a whole new meaning. Um, Williamsburg's always been. Um, you know, I won't say the guiding light in the field of interpretation, historical interpretation, but it's been very, very, very influential. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that they did at Williamsburg, in some cases still do, is groundbreaking, no pun intended. Not, maybe not in, in the archaeological sense, but in the interpret interpretation. Um, so, you know, the best form of flattery is plagiarism. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> and so, you know, I, you, I, I dare you to find a, his, uh, a colonial historic site that in some way, shape, or form does not copy what Williamsburg is doing or has done before. I freely admit, yeah, I, I, I take on their ideas, and we take those ideas and we adapt them. Yeah. And, you know, I can only hope that people do the same for us. Well, it's kind of ironic that you kind of started out at uh, Williamsburg because in the seventh grade, I took a field trip to Williamsburg and Jamestown, and the whole entire seventh grade was up there, and I think out of the whole entire seventh grade, I was the only one even interested in it. Yeah. And back then, we had disposable cameras, and I had my mama buy me probably five of them, and halfway through the trip, they were slammed. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and I still look back at those pictures. Oh, yeah. So, and, and, you know... Seeing, seeing the changes over the years, you know, um, Williamsburg's gone through some financial straits over the years, and so they, they, you know, they cut down on their, their on-site recovery staff, but they still do a lot with volunteers. Yeah. 
and so yeah, they're still they're still cutting edge. I, I will say the biggest change that hurt me the most over over the, the 50 years that I've gone to Williamsburg was going back a couple of years ago. I guess it was in the fall of 19, and the toy store that was on Duke of Gloucester Street that had been there literally my entire life. Oh no! That was that was the thing that really hit me the hardest. <laughs> was this toy store? A lot of my toys as a little kid, some that I still have um, to this day that either I've kept or my my mother's kept. Yeah, I got them there. Yeah, well, I know I hadn't been up that way since uh, since I was in the seventh grade. But I know after we left Jamestown, I want to say within a year, that's when they they started really doing some archaeology and they found the the steeple of the church. Right, and I've been trying to get back since you know, and stuff comes up, but uh, I'm going to get up there real soon again. I'm excited to see what they found, especially in Jamestown, and I want to go back to Williamsburg. I want to take my, mm -hmm. my kids up there. Well, moving ahead, the article says that your college professor was a Nazi. <laughs> no, he wasn't a Nazi. He was uh, he was Hitler Youth. Um, yeah, he was. I think in 1945 he was. I think 14. Um, when uh, when everything was going to pieces in Berlin, and they took all the Hitler Youth that were that were in Berlin, and brought them out into a courtyard and lined them all up, and they had a representative of the SS, the Luftwaffe, the Wehrmacht, and the Kriegsmarine standing there, and he said he said an SS officer went right down the line. SS lift off the Craig Marine, Vermont, and right down the lines. And then after he got to the end of the line, and this is all the Hitler youth from six years old to seventeen. Yeah. Um, and he said after it was done, they were all divided up into what number they were given, and then the SS officers went through each group and picked the ones out of each of the other groups that looked the most Aryan or the most eligible for the, what they thought would be for SS. And he was one that was pulled out and attached to the SS. And then they, um, he was lucky. He got sent to Austria. So when when the Americans came, started advancing on Vienna, um, you know, he was there and he was able to um, get out intact. And, but he he was a professor of history at uh, at Guilford College, and one of the classes he taught was the politics of Nazi Germany. Who uh, better to hear it from than someone who was actually there? Oh yeah, I like the I like history you can touch and see and first hand mm -hmm. first hand accounts, and he probably had some crazy stories. Yeah, he really didn't talk too much about um you know his experiences in the war. Yeah. Um. And probably for good reason. I mean, and granted, he was so young. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he has, he ended up collecting uniforms. And he had the most complete Nazi Germany uniform collection anywhere. He had one of everything, basically from the 1920s on up to the end. Wow. That's pretty incredible. And periodically he would bring stuff in. Usually, usually cats. Yeah. You know, hats or helmets. 
Yeah, I know I had a Spanish teacher in uh, high school, and her husband was out fishing one day, and um, she was telling us that he pulled in his cast net, and there was a spoon from White Star Line in there, and, and he, he was up toward Nova Scotia when that happened, you know, and, I mean, that's got to be pretty incredible. Like I said, history you can touch. Oh, yeah. And, and that's why I like American history, because I can go to sites like, like Brunswick Town and stand where they stood, and I don't know what I'd do if I ever went to Europe, you know, and so much history over there, and, and a lot older history, too. You know? <laughs> the, the European history, yeah, reading it over here on this side of the pond, that's one thing. But then going over there and seeing yeah. and experiencing, um, I'm not going to say it's system overload, but it can be. Um, I've, done, I've, I've been fortunate enough um, to go to Europe a few times when I was when I was married. My, my, my ex-wife is from Switzerland, so we go to Switzerland. And just about every time I went, somehow, I would get into a archaeological view. <laughs> the first one was a Roman site, um, which was incredible. And uh, then another one, we were was in downtown Basel, right outside the Münster, which is the big main cathedral there in, in Basel. We were in the street. They were doing excavations in the street, and I was just there you know, for half a day. But I remember I was eight feet down in the street, standing on the top of the Bronze Age. They hadn't even gotten through the... They had just gotten to the Bronze Age, not even through the Bronze Age, not even to the Iron Stone Age. Wow. So, uh, yeah, and you're eight feet down. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you go into, you, you go into houses that are 750 years old, and they're young. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, we look at 200 years over here, and we're like, wow. Yeah. But, yeah, about a 750,000-year-old structure over there, nothing. Yeah. Oh, I had a friend online one time. <clears throat> I used to work for the state temporarily and we were digging up Franklin Street which is the main road through UNC campus oh yeah and we were about eight yeah. feet down digging up a water line and I found a horseshoe with nails still in it oh yeah and I was super excited about it of course my foreman he said I put the thing down and go back to work you know I was excited about it but I was telling her I was like this thing could be 150 years old she said well there's a wall outside my house that's 1200 years old yeah exactly you know she was in Scotland by yeah. the way and, you know so <clears throat> and then we look yeah we, we we've got the American Revolution We've got the Civil War. You, know, you think Gettysburg, yeah. right? This massive battlefield. You think, you know, and then and then we look at Petersburg, Vicksburg. We we two major sieges on, and you know, we you, know, you can't walk those lines in a day, and a lot of times you can't find those lines because of development. Yeah. Um, and we think, man, this is impressive. This is something. Where else can you see this? And then you go to Europe, and you stumble on uh, Hartman's Villa Company, which is 1914, World War I, early World War I um, trenches yeah. in the Vosage Mountains. And they're there throughout. Yeah. And, you know, you're just doing, they just got one section done, you know, that's, that's conserved. And then you go, if you want to walk, you keep walking, and you follow it, and eventually you're going to go into woods, and you're going to go into the un, you know, unprotected sections that everything's still there. I mean, there's craters that you can park a pickup truck in. Wow. You know, 
it's just there's so much trouble for an American to wrap their head around you know rule one alone yeah because you're talking about a you're talking about a a pretty much stationary war for the country. Yeah. Um, and then World War Two, you're looking at sheer volume of, of men and material. Yeah. Not Civil War, American Revolution, they're skirmishing. Yeah, I, you read out the numbers. <clears throat> I think at uh, at Gettysburg, it was right at three hundred thousand men in that battle. And these numbers don't seem real, but you you read about some of the numbers in World War One and World War Two, and again, it's just mind blowing how many men were there to kill each other, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's see. I want to talk to you about... Maybe that question in a minute. I want to talk to you about the Collet House. Oh, yeah. Now, that, that article... That article kind of leads on like you almost single-handedly discovered the beginnings of that archaeolog- archaeological dig. I did. Yeah, I wanted to. It, it, it was that. an accident. Yeah, like like any good archaeological, ar- any, any good archaeological find, it's going to be accidental. Yeah, <laughs> you don't know. Um, I was uh, I was uh, visiting my folks, who were my parents were living in, here in Southport. We had been, I'd been in and out of Southport uh, in this area since about 1983 when I was still in high school. My dad. Uh, started working at the nuclear plant down here. And so they, you know, he pretty much had to be down here quite a bit. So we got, he had a beach house over on Lake Island. And then about the time I graduated from high school in 85, uh, my parents bought the house on, the Larson house on Atlantic Avenue and started restoring it. And during the summers, I'd come down and help. And, and you know, in and out over the, over the course of my college career, um, but, uh, yeah, in 1992, I was working for the National, I was on the tail end of my stint with the National Park Service, was visiting my folks, and the town of Southport was getting ready for its bicentennial. And, well, yeah, and because, the, and what they were doing was they were digging up all the palm trees that had been planted on, yeah. on public property. And we're replanting them with live oaks, you know, juvenile live oaks. So I was one one. It was a two. I remember it was a Tuesday afternoon, just after lunch. I was walking into town and passed by what was then City Hall, which is the old Brunswick County Courthouse on Moore Street. And they had just pulled up this uh, palm tree and had the live oak. They were lining the live oak up go into that hole and I saw two guys standing there looking looking in the hole and you know, I bored looking for something to do I walked over and looked in the hole and when I looked in the hole there's a brick wall running through it and I looked at those guys and said what's that and they're like oh, brick wall <laughs> oh man and we, we kind of stepped back and we're, we're discussing it for a second and about the time I turned back around that tree went boom right into the hole oh no I knew I knew the angle it was running and, and all that, and uh, I said, "Man, I wish we could. I wish we could open it open it up and see if we could." And one of the guy goes, "I'm a surveyor. I got tools." No, that was that yeah. Was and it. the other one and, and 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 the other one goes, "I'm on the board of aldermen. <laughs> <laughs> I give you permission." 
<laughs> so, and, yeah, Bill Delaney was, was an alderman and a surveyor, and John yeah. Gorman was, they were best friends. They were in separate. And, uh, so, Bill gets a few shovels out of the, out of the, out of the truck. I can go over about eight feet away from the, from the tree on the line that I thought that wall was running. And I sank a, sank a hole. Went down foot and a half, two feet. Bam. Hit the wall. Wow. And then we dug alongside the wall to where I could actually reach up underneath it. And the wall was two feet high. It was a quarter and a half wide and two feet high. And I said, oh, this, this is something. This got to be something because it's right across the street from Fort Johnston. Yeah. Which is pre-revolutionary fort um, and the Civil War fort. And it's in the front lawn of Brunswick County Courthouse, which, like I said, was being used as City Hall then in Southport. And, yeah, Bill goes, look, the Alderman meet this Thursday. So find out what you can do and, and yeah, what you can find out and make a proposal if you want to dig it. All right. So, yeah, I know very little about the history of Southport. Yeah. Or the lower Cape Fear at that time. I'm, yeah. I'm concentrating. I've been concentrating on on college and Civil War because uh, I was with at Fredericksburg, Pennsylvania National Military Park, and uh, so I did. I went over to the library and talked to um, a couple of the a couple of the quote unquote local historians just to get some ideas. I knew I knew it had to be something related to the courthouse or something related to the court. Yeah. And I found that the Brunswick County, that the current building that's sitting on that property, the original courthouse that was there was torn down in 1853, and the new courthouse was built on its foundation. So I could pretty well eliminate the courthouse. Yeah. But I found an 1802 um, drawing of Fort Johnson that showed a big barracks building that extended out across Moore Street into the front lawn of the courthouse. Sounded good. So uh, that Thursday, that Thursday evening, I went in front of the board of Alden. They didn't know I didn't know them. They didn't know me, and made my proposal. And I remember uh, Mayor Holden going, "Well, what's going to happen to the artifacts that you find?" No, what's going to happen to anything that you find? I said, well, it's city property, so it all belongs to the city. Okay? How much is it going to cost? I, did. I wasn't a registered professional archaeologist by any stretch, <laughs> but I'd done enough at that point. I had enough experience that I knew I could do it. And I was like, nothing. I'll do it for free. Because it, 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 the rest is history. Yeah. Literally. And I, I, that was uh, March 13th. I think it was uh, two, uh, 1992, and I stayed in that hole until December, and never knew what it was. Could not confirm, or couldn't confirm that it was Fort Johnston. Later on, a few years later, um, doing some research on Fort Johnston, I found out that that 1802 drawing was falsified. Oh, really? And that it, that that drawing had gotten pretty much everyone working on the fort at the time fired. Really? <laughs> yep. And then it would be another, say, three or four years later that 
I would Wilson Green had just published his book on Fort Johnson. Yeah. And so he and I were were in contact with each other quite a bit. And uh one one day I was up in Raleigh um doing some research at the archives and I told Wilson I was gonna be up there and he's like, Well let me know when you get up there and we'll have lunch or something. Right? We never did have lunch because that morning he said, I found something for you. I said, what? He said, I found um, collets in the room for the house that was burned when Fort Johnston was burned. I said, really? He said, yeah, take a look at this and see what you think. And I started going through that inventory list, and there was a number of items that he had listed, because he was very specific, that matched the artifact pattern of what I found. Wow. And that's when we realized that was Collett's house. Because it was behind the fort. We knew Collett's house was outside the fort somewhere. Behind the house, behind the fort makes sense. Now, see, one of my follow-up questions was, you didn't know what it was at first. What was the thing that made you realize what you had found? So. Yeah, it was the inventory. Because the, the, the artifacts were mixed. I mean, there was... I know, you know, I can say this now. I know, I know, I know, I know far more now than I ever dreamed about back then. Yeah. Um, I know I've forgotten more now <laughs> since then. But you know, now I can say, yeah, looking back, there were some high status items. Yeah. In, in in that more so than what you would find in a regular barracks. But there was also a brown best barrel. And it had been smashed across the top of the foundation. It had either been deliberately smashed or it had been laying there, and over time, just stuff built up over it. Yeah, and, just and compressed. It compressed and broke it right there on, that, on top of the wall. But also found a coin, a uh, half penny, that was 1767, which would have been when Collett got to yeah. North Carolina. But that's another thing. I was going to ask you how you went from a guy walking down the street to a guy in charge of this excavation. I guess yeah. you just kind of stumbled into the right people. I just stumbled. Yeah, I, I got to do it. I said I'd do it for free. You know, unfortunately, most of the artifacts and the reports that I did, because, yeah, this is back. I was using, I, I just, I literally learned how to use a computer. My dad taught me because he was working for the nuclear plant. I'd never used a computer in my life yeah. before, other than a, trying to program stuff that we had to learn in high school. Yeah. Um, but you, know, you got floppy, you four and a half floppy disks, three and two and a half quarter inch floppy disks, that sort of thing. And so, you know, all those, all, everything that I typed up on the computer, I first started doing it on by hand and on typewriter. Yeah. And then in 93, when I was compiling everything for a final report, I did it all on a computer. Saved it on a floppy disk, like a four and a half inch floppy disk. And you know, there's nothing in the world that reads those things now. Oh yeah, I might have to explain to some of my listeners what that is. So. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I had, a, I had a, a hard copy that I gave them. And a floppy disk that had stuff. I'm young. I didn't think, why don't you keep copying yourself, Dick Dollar? <laughs> Little did I know, 
I'm thinking, oh, that's going to be with the city. It's going to be safe. I don't know where the artifacts went. We don't know where the reports went. Really? I've still got my, my maps and my drawings and my field notes and stuff like that, luckily. See, I was going to ask you what happened to all the artifacts you all recovered. So yeah. You have no idea where they are right now? Some of them, I, you know, I know some of them I had in the visitor center when I was running the visitor center. Um, and then some of them went to the Maritime Museum. Uh, and then the others were put into storage. So yeah. Yeah, we considered going down to the Maritime Museum on this trip, but we were kind of running out of time, so I, yeah. I hustled up yeah. here. But we stop in at Southport just about every time we leave Myrtle Beach. So. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I live in Southport, so you can always holler at me there. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, the next question is, what was the, is there a single artifact from that excavation that I guess you favor more than anything else? What, you know, the coolest find in that? Of course, you may have already answered that. But. Well, I mean, you know, actually, one of the coolest to, at the time, you know, nowadays it'll barely register, but I found a boar tusk. Really? found a boar tusk, which was really cool. Uh, and I was like, yeah, because, and then I'm finding all these these bone fragments and stuff like that, and yeah, this, I'm pretty sure they they were all animal bones. Yeah. But it was, some of them were obvious, because you could see, you could see the, um, the, the saw marks and the knife marks on them. Oh, yeah. Um, probably the, the most unusual artifact that came out of there was a hairball. A hairball from a cat. <laughs> Two hundred plus year old hairball. Yeah, I guess hair sticks around a while. But. Yep. <laughs> um, and I mean, it was it was a perfect, huh? Perfect hairball. You can see it, it, the hair was still there. Um, Did you find anything written about this cat or? No, no, no. Didn't didn't know Colin had a cat. <laughs> um, it, you know, it might not even been a house cat. It could have been a bobcat. Oh yeah. Um, it could have been just about any kind of cat. I mean, we got tons of cats. I almost had a bobcat try to run up under my truck coming to work Tuesday morning. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that one, it's stuff like that that really sticks out. For example, um, in 19, when ECU was excavating the tavern here, yeah. um, among the, the, the thousands of artifacts and, and, and very notable artifact. The 250 plus year old mud dauber nests. Oh yeah, were fascinating. Yeah, I mean perfect still mud dauber nests. Um, a brick. In finding a, an intact brick out here at Brunswick is rare. Oh really? You just don't. For the simple reason when they when the Confederates built Fort Anderson, they went around the ruins. And took all the intact bricks they could find. Oh yeah, probably using something else. And using to build their buildings. Yeah. But we found this one brick that was mostly intact, but it had three prints in it. it had two dogs and a cat. Really? So you got a, you got a cat print right in the middle, and on either bottom corner, dog print and dog went, where both of them went across that brick when it was dry. <laughs> and see, some people would would think that's nothing, but. That's that's fascinating to me. I love stuff yeah, like that. It's, it's the, it's sometimes it's, it's just the little stories that, in the grand scheme of, of what you're researching, means nothing in the grand scheme of it. But it's that 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 you can pinpoint something right there. Oh yeah. And I 
used to I used to find airheads when I was a kid and my, my friends would laugh at me because I'd say, Stop, don't touch it. The last person to touch this thing could have been a thousand years ago. I said, Let's enjoy this moment, you know. I'm yeah, I'm ten years old and they're all laughing, they don't care about yeah, that stuff, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well it says you waited twenty years to get this job at Brunswick Town. Oh uh, yeah. What made you want to wait so long for this job? What what drew you to, to this job? Well, it's not so much this job, it's this place. Um, there is there's a magic um, about Brunswick. It, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Thank you, Cicada. Yeah, you had one land on you. And you're not Brudex either. There you go. Um, it, it, it's a magical place. Beautiful. Right here on the river. Um, but the history. You know, you're looking at, you're looking at, without a doubt, the most important port in colonial North Carolina. Oh, yeah. Hands down. Um, you're looking at, you know, it, for, for the people that live here in the lower Cape Fear, if you want to pitch your finger on where it all started, you can't. Right here. Yep. Um, if you're a student of American history, specifically colonial and revolutionary war history, if you want to find a specific time where you can almost say, yeah, the roots of revolution, the, the seeds of revolution were planted here at this time, you can do that here almost. Because you look at the Stamp Act, 1765, taxation without representation. We learned that in school. Um, Sons of Liberty. All that, it, it's all born 10 years before the war actually starts. And the the rebellion that occurs here in February of 1766 is arguably the first armed, successful armed rebellion against British authority in America. Oh, yeah. And so you've got all that. But plus, and I use this analogy a lot, the history of this site both Brunswick and Fort Anderson it is like a jigsaw puzzle. Oh, I bet it is. Only the problem is three quarters of the pieces are missing. Yeah. You know, you've got, you know what the town looked like in 1769. You know what the fort looked like in 1865. You know how the fort started. You know how the fort ended. And you know a little bit what happened in between. Brunswick we know when the town started. We don't know when the town actually died. Yeah. You know, if you read a lot of the stuff that's put out there, they'll tell you um, May 1776 when half the town was burned. Most of, most of the things you read will say that the whole town was burned. Was um, as a town, Brunswick will cease in the summer of 1776. But as a port, community, it, it may be as late as 1835. Yeah, in my we, research, it seemed like people kind of kind of started one by one going, it wasn't one big... No, it wasn't one big mass... I mean, it was a big mass exodus yeah. during the Revolutionary War, but some did come back. We know that. And we also know the port has to be here. The port remains here until um, the 18... At least 1826, yeah. the early. More than likely, it's 1830s that the port facilities here finally um, 
abandoned. Because, you know, Wilmington doesn't develop fully as a port until after steam technology takes over and, and these ocean-going vessels can make it all the way over the flats past yeah. here. But, yeah, it, it's just... Dude, there's so much potential in this site. Um, and I love the history. I adore the history. Um, you know, hey, I joke that, you know, I'm, I'm now the site manager. And I joke that for my sins, they promoted it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, meant, I'm, I'm the, I, I like to say I'm the perfect person in the perfect place at the perfect time. It sounds like it. I know you say the port's still here, and I know at Jamestown they found a corner of the fort actually out in the James River. Do you think there's a lot out in the river here that's still yet to be found? Actually, I don't think there's that much. Really? Um, I know the wharves. You know, there's Dry's Wharf to our right, and Roger Moore's Wharf to our left. Um, there's also the Fort Anderson Wharf on the other side of Moore's Wharf, and comes in and comes in, ties into the land just kind of catty corner where we're sitting now. Yeah. Then there's at least two more wards further south. As far as Brunswick goes, the town proper and the fort, pretty much the only, I think the only thing of the town that's in the river are those wards. Okay. And whatever associated shipwrecks and debris. Yeah. Um, this marsh, and hopefully by the end of the year, we'll find out the age of this marsh. Really? Um, this marsh, I've always, I've, I've, since I've been here, I've kind of been of the, of the thought that this marsh is young, less than, uh, probably since the 1840s. Yeah. Um, but UNCW is doing their, their environmental sciences, has done core samples. Okay. And they're trying to date, you know, get an idea of how old the marsh is, which means Moore's, if that, and if that's the case, this marsh is young, then most of Roger Moore's Wharf is under the marsh. Huh. <coughs> Excuse me. And Dry's Wharf, well, I know Dry's Wharf is all exposed. It's 180 feet long. We did find the land terminus, and I know where it terminates in the river. Okay. The other two wharves further south, they are definitely still under the marsh. So I'm hopeful if we can get this, get the erosion under control, then we can really start doing some archaeology in the marsh. Yeah. And to take a step back, I wanted to comment. You was talking about this site being a jigsaw puzzle. Um, I didn't realize until I really started learning about the site that it, and I said on the podcast, it's two historic sites stacked on top of each other. Exactly. And that's really unique compared to some of the sites I've been to where they're just Civil War, just Revolution. Yeah. But you've got two major areas. Um, and actually you can break it down um, kind of to three because you've got the 18th century so you got colonial and revolutionary colonial revolutionary eras um, you've also got the civil war and then you could even bring it up to um, late Victoria oh, yeah? with the turn of the century with the colonial dames coming out here and actually doing the early conservation of oh, the yeah. church in Russellboro. But you can you can break it down. We've got pre colonial history. So we've got seventeen twenty six to seventeen seventy five. Yeah. Then you got revolutionary. 
1783. Then you've got post-colonial and federal. 1867 reconstruction. Oh yeah, with the refugee crisis that occurred here, and then you take it up to um, 1890, about 1898, when uh, the colonial dames start coming out here and um, holding their pilgrimages, and that's when Brunswick really starts to get an identity yeah. somewhere. Then you've got post World War II. Um, with uh, Lawrence Lee and others that started coming out here and researching the site. And then in 52, when the Sprunts donated 114 and the Episcopal Diocese of Southeastern North Carolina donated 4.5 acres yep. to create the site. Wow. That's a lot. Oh, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. It, you know, you, you almost have to be... Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, I forgot. I forgot the word I'm looking for. Um, schizophrenic. Oh yeah. To work here because I mean, when I was just an interpreter, it was fun because I would do. Pro- I, you know, I'd have groups, and I would start out in regular work clothes, 20th century clothes, 21st century clothes, <laughs> and then I would switch over to. 19th century, <laughs> and then kind of get done with that group, come inside, change into 18th century, yeah. talk to another group, change back into 21st century, and talk to another group. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, trying to, trying to, you know, keep, keep, keep everything in, in check, you know, and plus, I'm now with the research, you know, in, a, in any given time, I can be doing research on, say, a colonial lime putty mortar. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I get a question out of the blue about um, the intricacies of 19th century artillery. And then what can you tell me about um, some of the uh, cone slipware that's been found out here or the Delft pile? Yeah. Or so-and-so from, you know, uh, Brunswick, it's it, it just, yeah, you jump around so much. Yeah, well, I know y'all have a archaeological archaeological dig going on right now. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that and how much involvement you have in the archaeology at Brunswick Town? Well, depending on, yeah, depending on what's going on at the time. Um, yeah, usually, you know, the first, the first couple of digs, um, I was really active in. Yeah, two thousand nine and two thousand eleven. Two thousand nine, I spent half my half that fuel school out there with them digging. Yeah, um, definitely either digging or Chris and I were out there removing copperheads. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. sound like too much fun. Nah, <laughs> but yeah, always yeah, always consulting. Yeah, and um, and then as as time's gone on, depending on what they're excavating would depend on how much involvement I'll, I'll have. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, like with the war, when they were doing the war, oh, I was literally knee deep in it. Yeah. Literally. And, um, and yeah, but I'm always, yeah, almost always, yeah, consulting with what's being found, answering questions about what might have been, what could have happened, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, with this field school, um, I really, I, honestly, I've not had time in the last three weeks to spend with them as I wanted to. Yeah. Even, and that, that started from the get-go. Because usually when the field schools come out here, their first day, they're getting acclimated to the site. We, I give them a tour, a talk, show and tell, all that good stuff. And unfortunately, this year, I was taking, me and, a, and one of my maintenance guys were, were taking the patrol burn class oh. on forestry <laughs> service. So we were in the field when they're starting. Yeah. Well, I know I told my wife, you go to most of these historic sites, they'll have signs that say no metal detecting. Right. And I want a metal detect, but I don't want a treasure hunt for myself. I just want to look at something like my airheads. I want to find something and go get it out of the way. Don't touch it. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I will turn it in. You know, I just want to say I found something mm-hmm. cool, you know. And that's, you know, most of, the, most of the people that have metal detectors, that's what they do. They just want to find it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if they keep it or not. Oh, it, yeah. It, and, and yet, my problem with metal detectors, I don't have patience for them. Yeah. I can sit in a hole with a drill pick, a toothbrush, and a dustpan yeah. for hours. <laughs> Put a metal detector in my hand and send me out. I do not have the patience. <laughs> I don't have the patience to do it. Um, I know others. That's what they live for. Oh yeah. Um, I watch the metal detecting groups on Facebook, and it's every day they're out there doing something. Yeah. You know. And we used to um, we used to do uh, metal detecting surveys out here. Um, and and you know we we were Burns are the guinea pig. I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. we're a guinea pig for a lot of things. <laughs> and when I when I first got hired, yeah, we wanted to we wanted to, to extend the olive branch to the metal detecting community. So we would have controlled um, excavations with metal detectors, you know, controlled surveys, gridded out, and all this stuff. Um, but that was that was a that was the early test that the Office of State Archaeology was doing so that when the time came to where we had an actual battlefield area to to, um, investigate, we'd have a template in place. Oh, he died. Sim was dead, the cicada. Um, So, yeah, after a few years of doing it here, you know, just hodgepodge here and there. Um, we were able, the OFA was able to refine it at, up at Alamance yeah. Battlefield. And so it, it's actually been termed the Alamance Template. Okay. For, for you know, metal, doing metal detecting surveys like that. And it's been used at Alamance, it's been used at Bentonville. Um, the state of Tennessee, when I was given a talk at one of the archaeology conferences years ago, they asked if I'd had, if I had a copy of the Alamance report. Yeah. 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 And, and it was actually an archaeologist from, from Tennessee that said the Alamance template. Huh. 
so yeah, who knows how how many times it's been shared and, and where else it's all being used. But, yeah. And you know, again, it's 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 plagiarism is the greatest form of flattery. <laughs> Trust me, this what was done here wasn't thought of yeah. by me or John Mintz or, or anyone else. It, it yeah. You take a little bit from, from what was done over in this excavation, over in this state, and over here, and over here, and over here, and you start putting the pieces together to so it works for you. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine if you turn a, a football team out onto a battlefield site with a bunch of metal detectors, they're going to destroy more than they find, you know. So, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of... Well, the problem know, is... About it. Yeah, the problem is... Um, it, it's... it's, it's Losing the context. Yeah. The thing about archaeology, archaeology is the most destructive science. Yeah, I'm not because saying. you know it, it, you are totally destroying what has been sitting there in the ground for however many years. Yeah. And so as soon as you dig, you've got one chance to get it right. Yeah. There's no oops. <laughs> There's yeah. no, oh, look at that artifact, and just yank it out. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. It's got to be, and, 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 it, and, you know, it is, for me, it's therapy. Yeah. For, I know people who do, who, who melt it that, it's absolute torture. <laughs> absolute torture to sit there and watch. But the, the, the limit, but, you know, there's, there, with metal detectors, there is promise. Yeah. But with metal detectors, there's also massive limitations. And, of course, the massive limitation is you ain't going to find what's not metal. That's right. If you find something that's not metal, metal detecting, accident. Yep. Yep. Accident. Um, so, yeah, with, with this site, um, the context is everything because there is so few written records. Um, out there that we have to get the archaeology right. Yeah. And when, when Stanley South, who is considered the father of American historical archaeology, when he came out here in, 1950, in summer of 1958 to start excavation, literally, he's breaking ground on a whole new um, archaeological theory. Uh, I can't imagine how that feels. Yeah. I mean, to the point where after about a year of excavating here, he went to um, the uh, um, Southeastern Archaeology Conference hmm. to talk about historical archaeology that he's doing at Brunswick. He was literally laughed out of there by his colleagues. Really? <laughs> Even his mentor, Joffrey Coe, said, you have just destroyed your career oh, man. by going with historical archaeology. Yeah. Up to that point, pretty much most everything in this country was prehistoric. Yeah. And but you had you had Hume, who was excavating, getting ready to start excavating. Well, was starting to excavate at Williamsburg. But yeah, you, know, you had you had excavations going on at Williamsburg, Jamestown, um, a few other notable sites. But that was it. Yeah. Um, nobody had gone into on their own to excavate a historical site not for a government yeah and that's what stanley south did state of north carolina hired him as a state archaeologist he came out here literally what south did um 
it's still studied. You talk to any any graduate student or any student of archaeology. Um, did you have to read Method and Theory? Of, and they're like, oh yeah, we know Method and Theory by Stanley South. Yeah. The Brunswick pattern of refuse disposal. He, he came up with here. The mean ceramic data theory in formula. Done here. And there's several others. But, you know, techniques change. Tools change. Technology changes. Yeah. And it keeps getting better and, 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 and more accurate each year. So the things South did in the 1950s and 60s here, well, it's been, in some cases, 60-some years since he excavated, like Nathaniel Moore's Yeah. Um, techniques have changed. Ideas have changed. More research. So... There has been over the past several years um, some reinterpretations of South discoveries, which that's what you do. You know, when you when you when you come up with something, it's like with uh, Fort Anderson Black, yeah, Lincoln and the Clown. Um, you know, right now the story, you know. For a while, Chris Font, Dr. Chris Fondle's version was the version that everyone knew. And then I started doing additional research, and I found additional stuff. And now my version yeah. is the official version. And But does that take what Dr. Fondle's been saying all these years and throw it out the window? No. I'll take it. I haven't changed anything Dr. Fondle said. I've added to it. Yeah. I've added to it. Just like I've added to it, and then he added to it, and then I've added to it again, <laughs> and I've added to it again just in the last two weeks. But I fully expect and I fully hope that whatever I do now will do nothing more than a stepping stone for the next generation oh, yeah. of archaeologists, historians, researchers, interpreters. Um, and, and that's how you keep it alive. Yeah. You know, if I say, this is the story, and there's nothing else to add to it, I'm lying. Yeah. I'm lying to, I'm lying to you, I'm lying to your listeners, I'm lying to myself. And if that was true, it'd be a, a sad truth, but... Yeah. But I think that's hardly ever the case. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you... you, you, you you don't rest on when when you're when you're a historian. Do not rest on your laws. Yeah. Do not. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question. You were saying, you know, the next generation and methods are changing. What do you think the next ten or fifteen years are going to look like here at Brunswick Town? You know, that's hard to that's hard to say because um, you know, 2026 is going to be a big year, is not it? just for. Um, Brunswick, but for the whole country, 2026 is going to be the 250th, the Declaration of Independence, yeah. founding of the country. It's also going to be the 300th anniversary of the founding of Brunswick. Wow. Unfortunately, it's also going to be the 250th of the burning. Yeah. So I got to birth the town and burn it all in the same year. <laughs> but um, yeah, what we're doing, a, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff to gear up to that. Um, the, the ruins are in vital need of stabilization. Yeah. So, 
that's one of the things we're going to be doing. So the, the ruins hopefully will start looking a little different. Yeah. Um, we're going to have a whole lot more interpretive signs up. Um, the hurricanes from, you know, time and the elements have not been kind to a lot of our interpretive signs, the yeah. wayside. Um, you know, Florence took out a few. Zayas took out a few. Um, so we got to get a lot of that replaced. Um, the exhibit hall is going to be about the same. But there's there's other big ticket items that I would love to see before my tenure here is over. Yeah. Um, one, I really want to reconstruct one of the houses. <laughs> as, as a classroom space, yeah. an interpretive space, um, as um, you know, a gathering place. Yeah. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there's no full descriptions of the houses. I can, we can rebuild in the, you know, based on a footprint. Yeah. And based on, you know, we can get the ground floor almost perfect. Yeah. Second floor and the roof line. It's the roof line that gives everyone fits. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to see a house rebuilt. Um, I would love to have one of our bomb proofs cleaned out and reconstructed. Yeah. You know, one of the problems we have is our, our magazines are still alive. Oh, really? Yeah, there's still ordnance in our, in our bomb proofs. Wow. At least two of them. There's four, four surviving. At least two of them are alive. And I'm betting two down on the northern battery are alive also. But these two over on the southern battery... One's completely collapsed, and one's in near collapse. Yeah. But I'd love to um, um, have one rebuilt. We, we started we started the planning process on that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's probably going to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of at least $100,000. Yeah, well, I mean, live ammunition, it sounds pretty serious. You probably have to, like, get yeah. gloves, you know. Well, no, the... the Removing the ammunition is the easy part. Oh, really? Believe it or not, that's the easy part. Oh. That's the cheap part. I figured that'd be the, the no, hair-raising no, part. No, 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 It's going to be hair-raising for about uh, two hours Yeah. while we're while we're digging in. Yeah. Once we get in, and, you know, I've got a plan on how to excavate it and, and all that. But once we reach the interior and if we find ammunition... For all we know, instead of ammunition, it could be tools. Yeah. But all indications lead to the fact that um, the magazines were not cleaned out. Yeah. Um, but, no, we'll, we'll, we'll partner with the United States Marine Corps EOD out of Camp Lejeune. Oh, okay. Because the EOD, the Marine Corps EOD, is the only agency in the country that's licensed to enter Really? Ordinance. Anybody else, any 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 law enforcement, um, fire department, um, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, they all have to destroy it. Really? But the Marine Corps is allowed to enter it. Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, yeah, we've got, a, we've got a plan. We've got a place to enter it. So, in other words, 
if they if we if we're able to do this and the Marine Corps comes out to because once we hit ordinance we stop call them they come in and remove it yeah and they're not and, and the great thing is they're not going to have to take it all the way back to Camp Lejeune yeah they'll be able to transport it somewhere on this site and do the inerting right huh. there in, well, a, in, a, in a controlled environment pretty fascinating well my last question and you may have answered that but you've had a a long life in history, and you were talking about your tenure here. What's what's left on your bucket list as a as a historian? What, what else do you want to want to do? Uh, I, there's there's there's. I really don't have a bucket list on that. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, I, my focus, my my sole focus from one day to the next is this site. Yeah. Is bettering the site, um, making sure that it gets its due. Yeah. Because it's not in the annals of, of God, just local history. It doesn't get its due. It's oh, not. Yeah. It's underappreciated. I mean, it, it hurt. It it, and it it does hurt. Where on any given day, I can be. I can be. I can be in the building at the front. And they either say it to me, or I hear them say it to someone else working in the front. I've driven by this place for 30 years. <laughs> Didn't even know it was here. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I love history, and maybe I can't, you know, I can't see the, the forest for all the trees, because, you know, I've been to Gettysburg, but I've not yet been to Alamance Battleground, and that's within 20 miles of my house. You yeah, know? yeah um, and that's the thing. Yeah, I love it. I love to be a tourist in your own town. Yeah, <laughs> concept because yeah, yeah, the aquarium will do that. Yeah, be a tourist in your town so anybody in Brunswick or New Hanover County gets in free. Yeah, we used to do that stuff at the Maritime Museum when I was when I was there. Um, and and, and you know, Maritime Museum when we first started out for you know from 1992, um, I got involved with the Maritime Museum. Actually, after I spoke at that Board of Aldermen meeting about the archaeology yeah. in 1992, um, that's when I got involved with the Maritime Museum. The museum wasn't open yet. It was still it was still a pipe dream. Yeah. Mary Wayne Strickland um, and a few others were, 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 they had the building, they were accumulating stuff, they were getting cases and all that stuff, and they brought me on, and I helped. Great story. Total side note. We opened that museum June 6, 1992. Yeah. Um, and no, very little fanfare. <laughs> but what was interesting was, at the time that we opened, they were, they were still doing a lot of filming in Southport. Yeah. And they were filming Matlock. <laughs> and Andy Griffith, and he was literally right around the corner. Really? I could step outside the Maritime Museum, look at the corner of Warren House Street, see the trailer he was in. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I said, I'm looking at the man. How about before we do the ribbon cutting, how about if I can see if Andy Griffith wants to cut, if he'd be willing to cut the ribbon for us? She goes, do it. Out, out the door I went. Yeah, I'm, how old was I? 25? Yeah. 26, something like that. And, uh, 
25 foot attempts. Anyway, um, I get, I, I find somebody, one of the Hollywood, Hollywood show people, and ask, you know, who I, I told him who I am, what I want, and, you know, see if Miss Griffin would like to, and we just walk into his trailer, go ask him. We knock on the door and ask him. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, you, you, I'm gonna meet one of my icons that I grew up with. Alright. <laughs> Knock on the door. A little bit of shuffling around. Door open. There I am, face to face with Andy Griffith, <laughs> wearing a button-down Oxford shirt, tied. You know, loosened up and white boxer shorts. Oh no! Black socks. I'm like, <laughs> and I recovered. I said, Mr. Griffin, I told him who I was. Shook his hand and and asked him. He says, Well, I'd love to, but you know, I'm getting ready to chain, do a wardrobe change, and we got a tight shoot coming up here in just a little bit. So I've known a little bit earlier, maybe I'd be able to do it. Well, that's all right. He says, Good luck. You know, glad y'all doing a good thing. And thank you. Wow. I said, ah. I got to meet Andy. <laughs> got to get his autograph? I'm not going to ask Andy Griffin for his autograph in his box. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, I'm planning on an Andy Griffin episode coming up soon. I'm just in the early stages of that right now. Oh, yeah. And I, that, 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 was the, that was the only time that yeah, I met and was right there with him. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd done a couple of episodes of Matlock a few years later. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Andy had, it was, it was right about the time, maybe a season or two before it ended. Yeah. Yeah, he was, age was, was hitting him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you said, you know, people keep driving past this place, and before I decided, before I started the podcast, you know, I would see the the church in a, uh, our state magazine or something, but I didn't really know a whole lot about this site, and it was a, a, a treasure, and I'm glad I found it, and. I hope with the podcast I can help kind of uh, oh, yeah. raise awareness about this place. We, we, we're, 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 I mean, we've rapidly gained a lot more exposure. And, but one of the things I've been able to do is branch out from um, just being a historical site. Yeah. We are now um, uh, kind of a, we're almost a hybrid, you know, because we're, we're part of, you know, there's, Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. Yeah. So, state parks and historic sites are combined under one umbrella. Oh, yeah. We're still separate. We're still state parks, still historic sites. But there were historic sites, or there were state parks that were also historic sites. Yeah. For example, Fort Macon. Yeah. I've been there many times. And then there's, there's historic sites that are also state parks. Yeah. Bentonville can now be considered more more now um, a state park and historic site because they've got so much acreage now. Yeah. Um, we've always somewhat, um, but you know, our nature trails got abandoned several years ago, and we're bringing those back. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're we're I'm, yeah, so we're getting the environmental and the bird watching in. Um, but we're also at the science station. Um, we look straight out here. We got the, the waterfront stabilization project, the reef makers. Yeah. 
that engineering project right there has gone international. Okay. Um, back in April, the Corps of Engineers published their second volume of Engineering with Nature. Yeah. And this last um, volume highlighted 62 uh, engineering projects worldwide. Wow. And we were one of them. That's pretty impressive. And, you know, I'm going, I've got the opportunity to go to China next year. Really? To speak. Wow, that's, that's on, great. On, it'd, be the, it'd be the World Conference for Oceans. Yeah. And um, talking about erosion, sea level rise, what we're, the challenges we're facing, and how we're, you know, yeah. combating Well... That's all the questions I got for you. It looks like it's going to rain on us any minute. Yeah, we need to start moving because it, yeah. I think it's going to rain. I think I can talk to you for probably an hour or two. But I can probably babble for another hour or two. Yeah. Well, Jim, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Any yeah. time. It was a, a good interview. <laughs> yeah, any time. Oh, yeah. See the flag? Oh, no, I hadn't walked around yet today. Because we we redid it. Oh, did you? Yeah. We, okay. uh, we didn't redo the yeah. But we we just displayed in a whole new area, a whole better way. Yeah. Well, Which, if you don't if you don't rain on me, I won't run around the site for a little while yeah. before I go. Yeah. How long do we get? Uh, we're at an hour and seven minutes. Okay. I'm gonna stop it right now. I'm about to say you, you said about an hour. Yeah. Well, that's the interview with Jim McKee. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope that that scratchy noise wasn't too aggravating. And if you've been here the whole time, then you've been here for a long time, so I'm not going to hold you up any more than I have to. There won't be any outro music on this episode, just like there wasn't any intro music. So all I'm going to say now is, I'll talk to you next time.